May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be free from harm. May all beings love life. May all beings awaken. Welcome to another Cuke Audio Podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Cuke Archives, uh, doing our bit to preserve the legacy of Shunryu Suzuki and those whose paths cross his and anything else that comes to mind. I pray that you and yours are safe and comfortable, free from economic hardship, and able to get out and do whatever it is you want within the limitations of the universal precept of do as little harm as possible. So today we have a guest, one Ted Trimp. Ted Trimp, uh, first, um, well, he was called Ed back then. Um, He added a T to his name. Uh, he um, ran into Shunyu Suzuki through uh, Bill Shirtliff. Bill Shirtliff, uh, this is very interesting. I learned about this from Ted, and since then I've gotten hold of Bill and, and, and gotten the story from him and and uh, put a little bit about it. Uh, I don't know if I put it on his page yet because I'm including it in Tassar's stories. It's really cool. Bill Shirtliff was a student at Stanford, and um, he was ahead of his time, and he set up a thing there in 1966, uh, 67, uh, uh, called um, at Stanford. So they brought in, you know, the sort of speakers and teachers and forward-thinking people that you might find at Esalen Institute, and Ted heard Suzuki speaking in one of those talks uh, at Stanford at Tresider Hall, he says. And um, it was, uh, you know, like a, a moment of brightness for him. He was he was pretty depressed about, you know, what he was experiencing there, you know, with the war in Vietnam and the various things. He talks about it, so you'll get it from him. And then he showed up at Tassajara in 68 and— uh, you know, he was a guest student for a little bit, and um, he tells his story, but uh, uh, he's going to tell you what happened then, and it was important. And um, because uh, he was going to have to go to prison, he thought, or jail or something for being an anti-war left-winger and all, and uh, he wanted to know more about practice to be able to prepare for going to prison. And so Suzuki Roshi initially said he couldn't stay. He told him he could. And listen, uh, Ted says something at the end that I'm going to give you a spoiler here. Uh, I think it's really good. Uh, he goes through, you know, his whole uh, life trajectory is pretty cool in the podcast. And we talk about climate change and stuff, you know, at the end. But anyway, uh, I, you know, I asked him at the end if he has anything he'd like to conclude with. And he said, a solid foundation of dharma and ability to practice meditation is a good preparation for what comes next. I really like that. A good just for what comes next. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of times we're concluding in the podcast 
and then we keep talking. So he said it once, and then we concluded again. I got him to say it again. So um, uh, listen, I won't give away any more of it to you. It's some pretty interesting stuff there. And uh, so look, uh, as soon as we've had our pause to meditate, we'll give Ted a call. So when you hear the bell, if you're of such a mind, Hit pause and meditate or whatever for as long as you wish. And when you're ready to come back, hit unpause. And we'll be there to hit the bell to end the meditation or whatever. And we'll give Ted Trip a call. Hello. Hey. David. Ted, how you doing? I am all right. I am all right. I drove up for, to uh, my daughter's in Tallahassee, and I'm, I'm in my my little own room here, and uh, it's a nice afternoon. Hmm. Hmm. Well, and you're in good. Japan? No, no. I, uh, I live in Bali. Uh, Bali? Yeah. Little more that's laid good. back than Japan. <laughs> mm. Indo- Bali is Indonesia. Right. 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 What are you doing in Florida? Uh, what are you up to these days? Up until 2008, I was uh, teaching at uh, two universities in, in California, San Jose State. And UC Santa Cruz. I was I was teaching uh, writing hmm. to incoming freshmen at San Jose State, and then I was teaching at uh, English Language International at at uh, UC Santa Cruz. Oh, really? We, we taught uh, students from all over the world. Uh, was that sort of ESL English most, and second language mostly? Yes, but at a pretty high level. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not entirely, but most of the students were prepping for college entrance at, at America. Yeah. What countries? University. Oh, gosh. Uh, really everywhere. All the way uh, Russia, Mongolia, China, uh, Japan, of course, a lot of Koreans. Um, Um, all right, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, my experience in Japan was that uh, Japanese put a, a lot of time into studying English. It was in their school system uh, all the way through. Yeah. But, it, you know, it emphasized reading. They had a lot of trouble talking, and their culture uh, made them shy and not want to make mistakes. So. They tended uh, to have difficulty. Uh, uh, I'm not uh, being... Well, let me, how do I say this? I mean, 
Americans have no room to criticize Japanese because Japanese, right. uh, many, many of them, put a lot of time into learning a foreign language. But the Chinese I'd meet in Japan would speak great English. Uh, now, um, you know, that, that China, though, had so many people that the ones that would excel would be like, you know, uh, very high level students. But anyway, that was my experience. Uh, well, there's other reasons, too. The structural similarity of Chinese and English are very close. And That's so true. So it's much easier. I, I spent some time when I, I taught overseas. I taught in in uh, in Korea and Chinju, um, uh, South Korea. And of course, I learned Korean. And sometimes, I mean, I would have a literal headache getting my my mind to um, not think in the English way of of, of forming meaning and, yeah i mean it was all, all everything was backwards that's right it's it's, it's, it's um it's just like japanese except and it mm-hmm. sounds like japanese but it's different words <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, that was my my impression when i yeah i ended up in japan after being in korea and uh i i almost got to the point in korea where i could understand uh speech and uh and it just seemed to me that it was in Japan that they were speaking Korean with a, a kind of an oddity uh but uh, uh yeah well slightly different sounds yeah japanese uh in general have a very strange uh view of Korea like they they uh Korean pottery is revered and a lot of Korean uh, culture and stuff but the, right. the the discrimination against Koreans there is very serious it's embedded well, it's embedded i've seen it uh just really shocking sometimes well korea was the uh the the conduit to China and I mean the Chinese culture flowed through Korea to Japan mm-hmm. so Koreans were, were Japan's teachers for many centuries mm-hmm. I mean they I mean all the way from iron to writing and uh, and so there there should have been a reverence but when when Japan westernized and the Meiji they learned that imperialism was the way, and they had to have colonies. Uh-huh. So they they captured Taiwan and Korea as mm-hmm. their first colonies. This is like way back at the beginning of the uh, uh, early part of the 20th century. Oh, yeah, and, right, you know, right at the beginning of the 20th century. I'm not sure exactly when. Yeah, maybe 1905 or something, huh? Yeah, you're, you're right. You got that. Yeah, the notorious Japanese Asians killed the last Queen Min, 
who was actually, I, I don't know much about her, except that the Japanese are kind of remembered as much as anything for killing the last queen of the Joseon dynasty. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. They were really bad with Korea. With Korea. Yeah. Uh, my understanding is that uh, they were they weren't as hard on Taiwan, but that's just from one source, but a very knowledgeable uh, uh, person in that area. That could be. That could be good. I mean, they were brutal with Korea. I mean, it was a colony. It was like like they just uh, ripped off the rice. And I mean, that's the thing, you know, rice is everything. Well, they, and, yeah, uh, they made slaves out of men. Suzuki's temple yeah. during the war, uh, Suzuki Roshi's temple had to, you know, they were forced by the army to keep Korean forced labor. And later really? that was replaced with soldiers in the temple. And of course, they did not like it, but nothing they could do about it. Uh, that and, and Japanese uh, made uh, or the government of Japan made Japanese the national language of Korea. <laughs> Did you yeah. know that? <laughs> yeah, and they they outlawed uh, Korean writing. Oh, now the the hang, Hangul is that what it's called? They're writing Hangul. Yeah. In in yeah. Japanese, it's called Hangaromoji. I think. Um, what? Was that created before World War Two or after? Oh wow! It's really one of the kind of most outstanding stories. Oh yeah! Uh, in, in modern history, uh, Sojong King Sojong, something like that. He's the one on the money. Uh, decided knew everybody. I mean. Koreans are pretty sharp intellectually, and uh, they realized that writing in Chinese was just a drag. It was hard to learn <laughs> all the characters, uh, you know, and it, 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 grammatically it was not correct. I mean, Chinese is, a, is not an inflected language, and Korean is. And what do you so mean by you inflective? Well, okay, so I go to Seoul, Sore Gayo, and the A part means two, and, uh, and then the, the verb is, uh, Ga, and then Yo is the present tense, and Chinese is, uh, uh, Chu So, you know, y you have, Four words to get four syllables to get the same meaning that in Chinese you'd do with two. Yeah, right. And so, right. But what does inflective mean? Well, inflections are 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 the little particles that you stick. Oh, on the oh, end. oh. Okay, particles. And incidentally, in Japanese, they would say eh to go somewhere too. So, sole iku, sole kimas. Uh, exactly. You don't have to say I the mean, subject uh, in Japanese, you know. Oh, oh and, the, and then subject and object is is also like like the direct object is, is simply is un, you know. So uh, 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 the teacher un uh, 
given uh, uh, so you can ask, by having the inflections you can put a sentence any way you want subjects and objects are virtually interchangeable depending on what you want to do what what your meaning is uh-huh. and, uh, and but those two languages are really grammatically so similar when you try and tell a Japanese that their language is very is a, is a related closely related to, to Korean and they'll they'll argue with you well they, I don't know, know I I I think it's sort of a mystery now I, I maybe there's uh, you know I w- I was living there 30 I, years ago and I looked into this stuff a long time ago but mm-hmm. f- finding a uh, where Japanese came from and the roots of it and everything, uh, uh, I, I don't know if you could say what it's related to. It looks like it's related to Korean, but I hadn't really read definitively that it was. It's sort of mysterious. My my understanding is is. Um, their uh, grammar and structure and everything's like almost identical uh and and, and the way they sound alike it's strange but uh I'm not up on the David scholarship. imagine if you were a racist southerner yeah and uh, somebody told you science says that human beings came out of Africa well, you don't have to be from the South to be a racist or to... <laughs> or to uh, but, I mean, when, when it's an integral part of your culture that, that uh, black people are inferior, what, you're telling me that, that my ancestors were were black Africans? Come on, now. I mean, of course, that is the case. But uh, Yeah, well, and also uh, white Southerners had a very high percentage of black blood. Uh, that's I, what I've heard. As, yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. DNA. Yeah, I've I've never had that genome thing, uh, but I but really this, well, want my to. My point is. Go on. Well, the point is that the Japanese learned racism due to their colonial relations with with Korea and they in in their self image Koreans had to be inferior so one of the the oh i the, see the best one of the clearest meanings of origin is the land of the rising sun but where does the sun rise <laughs> and, i mean so i'm i'm pretty clear i mean the, the 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 great migrations, you know, thousands of years ago, like they the this this one people came down and met up with uh, the indigenous Korean people. That the legends speak of this. I mean, the the way the uh, Tangun meets the bear and the tiger, and you know these were other tribes, really, and then. Uh, Another branch and, and stayed in Korea and settled. And another branch went on to Japan. Yeah. And then, and they met up with another people, the indigenous people of Japan, who were much uh, softer. That that kind of soft brown 
Harry, the character of, Harry, of the, the I knew that we the, see in the Japanese. Yeah, the, I knew her the hairiest people on earth. And when I studied anthropology, you know, over 50 years ago, um, I knew were classified as Caucasian. Uh-huh. And, uh, which is weird. I, you know, uh, uh, those things all change. Uh, and, uh, there might be a, you know, totally different way of looking at it now. Yeah, I knew were cool. I, I hung out with I knew some in Hokkaido and, uh, the, they were like being with, uh, hippies in America compared to Japanese. <laughs> but they spoke. <laughs> But they spoke, uh, their Japanese it, it was uh, a very clear and understandable. Uh, so that, that was, uh, I thought that was uh, interesting because, because they hadn't developed, at least the ones I talked to, they hadn't developed a way of talking that you know, it was hard to understand, which I've experienced in America with some. Uh-huh. Uh, people, uh, dialects, yeah, local dialects, yeah. yeah. Uh, did they have an Ainu language, a home language? Well, I'm sure they did. <laughs> I don't know about it. Uh, but, um, of course they had, <laughs> they had a language. Uh, but I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I just know that the Ainu seemed pretty cool to me. I mean, Ainu, you know, yeah. would touch, you know, and and they smoked pot, very very weak pot they grew and you know the Japanese you know just turned uh, well the the I knew our Japanese now but the the uh, mm, the the in crowd Japanese what do we say uh, the invaders I uh, wouldn't pay any attention yeah and and I knew men well, would go do uh, ironwork. In Tokyo and stuff like that, much like the Mohawks in in uh, New York, New York yeah. City. Uh, they were really, yeah, they're the Indians, but they were not colonized, were they? The, well, the they were driven the up Korea north. Were. They were driven up yeah. north, and I I don't know to what extent there was uh, genocide or anything like in America. Uh, I I don't know, uh, uh, but but. I, I think they were all over and down south, you know. Uh, yeah. Because, um, uh, you know, Hokkaido is like, when I was there, uh, Hokkaido was was like the frontier compared to, you know, the, the other three main islands or, or uh, Okinawa. Hey, I want to say something about Hangul. You said it's... Mm. Uh, uh, um, oh, so Sejong uh, so Se gathered his uh, smartest people. And, you know, they back then they studied linguistics. I mean, they already like Chinese. When? Back when? when this was would be about the, uh, I think in the 16th century. Oh, is that right? And so they sent scholars all over the world to study various language writing systems. Uh, Chinese they already knew, but they, Mongolian had a, a, 
completely different script and uh, Sanskrit, of course, and then then if, there was the uh, European script that we all know. And, and they came back and they developed a syllabary with about a hundred different symbols with which it was possible to create every syllable in Korean. Some people say you can learn Hangul in a day. Yeah, yeah. And and that allowed the people, this was, Sejong realized that Chinese was uh, useless for the, to develop Korea because people are not going to spend the time to learn it. Mm-hmm. And so he was able, like, uh, to create this language that allowed Koreans, all of them, to be almost instantly literate. And it really, I mean, I learned Hangul in a day, and I can still, uh, I can still read Korean. I don't always know what everything yeah. means, but yeah, yeah. And for the for the most part, it, it's very true to uh, the, the written and the spoken are. Uh, close together. Well, and, what I read is it's the most true. It's the most perfect uh, phonetic uh, mm-hmm. syllabary. Uh, like, but I wonder about uh, uh, hiragana and katakana in Japanese because when I studied Japanese intensively, we learned hiragana the first day and katakana the second day. Uh, and there weren't a hundred symbols. There were fifty or something. Um, uh, right. Uh, and um, it's pretty. It's you know, it's pretty good. I would, you know, I if I was writing a letter in Japanese, uh, the you know, uh, it, you know, I I would I would write it in hiragana a lot. I mean, the characters were. You know, I wasn't that great at, at Japanese, but I could just write it in hiragana, and, and uh, uh, you know, they'd understand. Did you learn any kanji? Oh yeah, I, yeah, definitely, but um, I didn't get at a high level. But yeah, I knew kanji, and I studied, um, you know, I studied dogen and. Uh, Sandokai, the things we chant at Tassahar. I studied it all in the original and studied with priests. That's all, you know, that's, that's all Chinese, don't you? Yeah, I know. Uh, but, okay. uh, look, no, the, say, take the Sandokai. Uh, uh, we chant it in, uh, Japanized. Uh, uh, no, you chanted in classical Chinese. No, 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 it's no, your... no, we did not. Yes. You... No, what? no, the Chinese, uh, I studied it in Chinese because it's so much simpler. Uh, but the, the character order and, and, and they have what you call the inflections. The particle that, the, the, Sando Kai, Chikudo Dai Sin No Shin. Uh, uh, that no in there is like an apostrophe S. And in Chinese, so, there there isn't that, and the word order is different. Uh, so well, what, what, the, what the Japanese did 
was that they basically took their Chinese characters as uh, nouns and, and base verbs and then stuck these particles on. That's right, but they, they changed the word order so that the the kanji, uh, which means Chinese character, uh, mm-hmm. the kanji uh, came to be uh, used for Japanese. And, of course, then Chinese entered into the Japanese language. So where they had the word um, uh, harakiri, uh, uh, hara, you know, is your stomach or you know, there. Uh, uh, and kiri uh, is to cut. Uh, the Chinese pronunciation is seppugu. Uh, but uh, they used the wait, Chinese wait, wait. characters wait, for those... Japanese words. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, but uh, th- there was a meshing of the two. But the way Japanese uh, uh, have uh, brought other languages into theirs, you can see what's Japanese. It's almost like everything is in italics or quotes. So that the, the Japanese, their language has not been, uh, uh, you know, it hadn't turned into Tex-Mex, you know, it, it, uh-huh. um, the original Japanese is clearly preserved. And that's the way, that's one reason why Japan has preserved its culture so well in the midst of being totally westernized in so many ways is that Wow. What is Western is Western, and what is Japanese is Japanese. And mm-hmm. Bali's like that, too. Bali and, and Japan have both preserved their original cultures uh, better than a, a lot of places. Um, wow. Well, what I know, I, I don't really know the Sandokai. I've heard of it. but uh, So do you recall in the early days in Zen Center, They'd pass out these big uh, sutra cards. They're eight by twelve, and uh, they were showed Chinese character kanji, and, and below them would be in English the uh, pronunciation. Right. right. Yeah. Now the Heart Sutra was chanted in Chinese word order. I think right. The heart yeah, sutra. Yeah, it, it, it's a is, Chinese text. And, yeah, and, it's uh, Chinese, after, and, and they chant it in the Chinese. There's some things like we chanted the the Fukan Zizingi, the, the very long in Zazen under Tatsugami. We chanted it in the Japanized Chinese. We chanted the Heart Sutra, uh, the Dahi Shin Durani, and some of them in in the Chinese. You know, just with the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese characters of in Chinese the words. Chinese order. Exactly, yeah. And um, after yeah. my, uh, in my third year of Chinese studies, I studied classical Chinese. Mm-hmm. And I remember vividly one day, in the, the, I was going to Stanford and, and lived in Los Altos, where uh, Coben had the Los Altos Zendo, you know, what I'm talking about? Of course. Uh, haiku Zendo. Yeah. One one day I realized I 
could read the whole sutra yeah. in Chinese. Yeah. And uh, it, was, it was really remarkable. It was, you know, uh, wow. And that had been the impulse for me to study uh, Chinese in the first place. So I was kind of a little proud of myself. <laughs> How's your Chinese? Well, after 50 years, I can still speak and understand a little Chinese. And I, I, I went over to China to teach at a Chinese university. And sadly enough, I couldn't stay. There was kind of a family emergency. But while I was there, it all was coming back to me. When I graduated from Stanford in 71, I could read a Chinese newspaper with the help of a dictionary, of course, but I, I had mastered the 2,000 basic characters or, or so that requires to be a literate Chinese. Mm-hmm. And I could carry on a, a conversation and even a, a business deal. That's really good. That's really yeah. good. But without practice and see in those days I was going to go to China Hmm. and the cultural revolution you know we'd heard about it we didn't know what was going on and uh, (laughs) a young man of a family I was close to in in Palo Alto came back from China and he said it was really awful don't go they don't like foreigners anymore and you will not be welcome, you will not be happy, don't go. Yeah, right. And at, the, and at that time, Taiwan was a uh, cruel dictatorship. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I knew I would not do well there. What, I, I went to work for uh, as a busboy at a Chinese restaurant. And one day Where? I said something in the... Uh, Burlingame or Millbury, something like that. I'd catch no the kidding. train. Yeah, I'd catch the train from Stanford and go, go up to the uh, up the peninsula and go to work. My my waiter was Taiwanese, and one day I casually said something positive about Red China and uh, Mao Zedong, and uh, and he went snap to attention. I am a colonel of the Chinese Air Force. You cannot talk to me that way. You're fired. That was it. I was gone. I was out of there. I mean, he was livid that I I speak well of China. Well, they did terrible, you know, terrible things. Uh, Now, uh, Chiang Kai-shek did terrible things in Taiwan. They... They mass murdered the the uh, local intelligentsia. Um, oh, I know, and uh, I mean, yeah, it was a it was a, an invasion. They all talk about you know Taiwan and all this. Well, the the nationalists invaded Taiwan, literally invaded Taiwan, and then, like you say, killed the local intelligentsia, the the the, the local administration. They took over uh, control of of the whole island. Yeah. That was before Chiang Kai-shek came with the rest of the army. Well, that's interesting. Well, yeah. uh, oh, I want to say one thing about uh, syllabularies. And, of course, the syllabulary is just one way to represent a language. But 
it's so good because each syllable has a symbol. There's one American Indian tribe that developed a writing system, you know, 150 years ago or something, uh, that's supposed to to rival Hangaru for being perfectly uh, phonetic. Probably the Cherokee. Yeah, it's likely. I mean, it, it, this it's the only system that makes sense. Uh, I mean, the English has struggled mightily trying to reconcile uh, form and and sound. And, uh, you know, we, we still have this incredibly chaotic... Uh, uh, writing system. The only virtue of it is that it it preserves the history of the language. That's right. Like where's that's right. <laughs> um, and uh, I remember when there was a maybe Jerry Brown formed it uh, a committee. Mm-hmm. God, I'm you know in my mind I'm getting metrics and language reform. Uh, confused, but in both those, I, th- I think Stuart Brand opposed uh, reform because you could see the history. You, you know, I'm I'm very interested in word origins, and I look up words all the time. You know, what's what's what does this word really mean? Uh, and and what do we, you know, there's what it meant in origin, what it originally meant, and then there's what people mean by it when they say it now. I look at that, and I, I try to be precise, you know. Well, so do I. You know, when, when you said that, I just I do that all the time the same way. I mean, yeah. there's a reason. Where at one time, you and I were very close. At least I felt I was close to you and uh, at Tassajara, that summer that we spent together. And there's a reason. I mean... There's a lot of compatibility in how we think, you and I, and what we what we like and what we want. Mm. Anyway, mm. but I definitely do that exact same thing. I mean, I'm 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 awful at it. I'm, I mean, people accuse me of being a uh, a pedant. <laughs> a but, what? A what? Well, oh, a, a pedant. Scholar. A pedant. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just realized how close that word was. There's a lot of talk about. Oh yeah, yeah, pederast, and then there's the foot doctor. The uh, right. What's a foot doctor? <laughs> podiatrist. Oh yeah, podiatrist, and uh, yeah, uh, well. Uh, uh, okay. What? Well, hey, let's let's go back to, uh, uh, like look at look at uh your 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 life in terms of uh, your way seeking mind story. When did you first get uh some hint uh at uh, oh you know you wanted to know what everything was all about and that sort of thing. And what led you to well, Zen was, Center, et cetera? <laughs> I, w- I was a very ambitious uh, young man, young person. And uh, they asked me, I, you know, I did well on all this, the, the tests and uh, was a boys' state representative and a national merit 
Scholar finalist, and I was really? admitted to both Berkeley and Stanford with uh, uh, scholarships. And, uh, wow, that's great! You know, I could have I could have gone to either, and so they they actually had a little radio program about young people going off to college, and they asked me why what college I would go to, and, and I said that I'd go to Stanford. Why? Because it's the best. I said. Mm. Well, my actual experience at Stanford was was really quite different. I mean, you know, I got to read and think about and and meet people that I had never met before. I remember that we read Veblen, uh, the theory of the leisure class. We we read the Communist Manifesto, Marx, and this is all with history of the Western civilization. But mostly, what I I I discovered was that. Uh, class. I had never really been aware of class. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and there were all these people who were, you know, touting around people of money. They were, you know, that's like, like one of my best friends was a guy named Yo-Yo Uline. And, uh, Yo-Yo right now is one of the richest men in America. And, mm. uh, not that I could go to him. And there was, Hashi Yamada from Yamada Steel, and anyway, the, 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 these, all, all of this wealth, and I became really very confused. This is a, these are all my friends, but I am not one of them. And I just became, in, in, in many ways, like these ideas that I was dealing with, these liberal philosophies and uh, of the classical liberal tradition, not the what we call liberal today, which is some weird mishmash of fake human rights and anyway uh, but the real liberal tradition of the western civilization and nothing seemed to work right and at a certain point I think it was my second year in college I uh, became aware that I was like a plaything of all these rich people and uh, that I would you know, I would never, I would, I would never be a peer. I would never be an equal. And mm-hmm. uh, even if, even if I became, you know, a rich man, I would, I would be in this middle class, you know, subservient of the rich. Anyway, that was weird to me. It was not really acceptable, and it was frankly, utterly mind breaking. So my mind started to break. And so much so I could not stand going to my junior year back to Stanford. And so I went over to Madrid, Spain, to spend a year. Huh. And uh, and as I was, the last month I was at Stanford, I went to a teach-in. And the teach-in, these, these scholars had were going all around the inter- to universities all over the, the country and, and teaching the reality of the Vietnam War, mm. that, that what was going on was an extension of French colonialism, that these people just wanted to be free, that communism was a was a logical way to to do that, that this all developed like fighting the French and then fighting the Japanese. This is national self-determination. And they were righteous, and we were wrong, you know, and the Americans were wrong. So that, and then over in Spain, I, I read the, the European newspapers, and then at that time, yeah, that, much that 
getting out of America and getting news from other countries is really helpful. Uh, and it's the same today. Uh, I mean, some news sources are better than others. But American news is so focused on America and it's very influenced by what the government policy is, you know, um, and what the, you know, what the, you know, what agreement society has on what's right and wrong and what's happening. It's being out of America and getting new. Of course, you can do it now. I, I look at Al Jazeera a lot and uh-huh. BBC and, uh, but anyway, go on. Well, so, so this, so we're, we're really taking a young man with all of his, his, uh, upbringing and everything is middle class America, American dream. And then, Hey, it's not like that. This is, you know, this is no shining city on the hill at all. This is a, you know, a bunch of warmonger imperialists. And, uh, of course, I didn't have that language at that time. But, but basically, I, I, I utterly questioned everything. Yeah. And, the, and yet I'm in Spain. I'm in a fascist country. Uh, <laughs> Franco was still in charge. And right. When you say were, you were in a fascist country, you were in Spain with Franco. In charge, yeah, in the seventies, huh? Didn't yeah. So, huh? so I was, I was, I was uh, hit once by a Bedell, uh, not a Bedell, a, a, a policeman, for kissing my girlfriend, and this was like a, a off, off, off street kind of alcove. But he spotted us kissing, and he, came, he whacked me over the back with his club and said, "You can't do that here." And there was you said and right. another time. There, yeah, there was a student riot, and uh, all the Spanish students came roaring in. I wanted to go to lunch, and I pushed my way out. When I got out the door, there was a whole line of 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 Spanish soldiers all lined up there, hundreds and hundreds of them with rifles. And this big tank comes rolling around. It was a squishy little tank, but it was huge to me. And it had a water cannon. And that guy sprayed me with this water cannon. And, you know, I ran away as quickly as I could. And I picked up a rock and I threw it at the thing. I was pretty mad, you know. uh, They arrested my roommate and charged him with insulting the Spanish state and throwing rocks. You know, one American was as good as his other. And, of course, the embassy got him out soon enough, but the newspapers charged him for inciting the riot. <laughs> and it was me. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> they arrested the wrong gringo, you know, the wrong wow. American. But uh, and there were other things that you know, it was a wonderful, exciting time, real solid friendships, uh, wonderful girls. I mean, I, I, I was going to stay, but my parents insisted I come back. When I get back, you know, the whole draft thing is going on. The, in the time I've gone away, the, the, uh, the whole war starts kicking up. Thousands of 
American soldiers are in, and acid comes around, and marijuana. Now, what and year are you so talking I, about now? Well, in, 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 let's see. I think it was 65. I smoked marijuana for the first time. Down there. Oh, all so, right. I I don't know where I got 1970 stuck in my head, 71. Not, not there yet. Not yet. 66, I went to Spain. Oh, I see. So yeah, I come, then that that all makes sense. That all makes I, sense. So I come, I come back, and I literally walk right past the place where you're supposed to uh, sign up for uh, draft deferment. And I said, I'm not going. I'm not going to do that. No way. And I joined the draft resistance. I didn't actually join. I don't, I, I don't, David, I don't like to join things. I'm very much like to keep to my own devices. I don't like groups very much. Solitary. Anyway, so I, but I don't uh, sign up for a draft deferment. And, uh, you know, all this chaos going on, everything, the war, the isolation, the, uh, the scholarship, the ideas, and I literally one time just took off from class, and I went all uh, like for three days. I I wandered in in the Santa Cruz Mountains, mm. and uh, mm. you know I didn't know anything about meditating, but uh, but I I kind of had I started to have like spiritual experiences Mm. and so so much so that the world started to be you've heard of the dark night of the soul you've heard that expression yeah well that was that was really true for me things got really dark I, i i think i was on the verge of craziness but uh my friend bill shirtless whom you probably know well of course uh, Took me to a a a, uh, a Tresider Hall meeting, and uh, there was Suzuki Roshi. And in all of this darkness and this confusion, there was clarity. There was literally light glowing. This man literally glowed, and I listened to him, and I I I I followed him. What and year was that? Well, this is getting to be sixty-seven, early part of sixty-seven. And was and, I literally, and this is yeah. you said something hall started with a T. Uh, where you heard him? Was that at Stanford? Tresider Hall at Stanford. Yeah. Uh huh. Bill Bill was very. You know how Bill is. I mean, he organizes things. Right. Did and, he organize uh, that talk? Oh yeah. In '67, yeah, uh, is that right? He called it, yeah. He called it Esalen at Stanford. And oh, well, anyway, wait a minute. He called it. It was more than Suzuki then. If he called it Esalen, oh yeah. What was it? What? Oh, we we met all the big dogs. Alan was Alan Watts and Gary Snyder and you know everybody he could get who was uh, you know some something. And uh, the, once a week, he'd have these talks. I'm going to try. Uh, you know, he's never told me that. Uh, he's pretty private, but uh, I'm going to write him 
and ask him about that. Uh, so, well, I hope my memory and dates is all right, but well, that didn't matter. that we started to go up to San Francisco and and sit Zazia. And uh, you say we? Who's we? Well, I'm, I'm sure I didn't go by myself. I really don't know. Maybe with uh, Larry. What's Larry's last name? But it, you know, it was a trek to go up to Stanford. But I mean, up to San Francisco. But you know, we did it. And then there was a, a <coughs> one one day session. Do you remember those one day? Yeah, on Saturday. Back? Yeah. And so I sat one of those and uh, went down to to Tassajara for for a week. What uh, year is this? Sixty seven still. I'm thinking so. Yeah. Uh huh. That's but the it, first year, but, you know. So I I learned to. Uh, it was cold. That's what I mainly remember. It was just really fucking cold. Oh. So you're and, talking about what month? Uh, December. No, no, it was couldn't have been November. It would have been like March. Uh, probably sixty eight. Like Could be. Anyway, uh but I Yeah, sixty eight. Yeah. Go on. I learned to sit Zazen. And then uh so that gets me going. and then like the Jeff resistance thing is, is really happening and I pretty much drop out of uh, Stanford, and uh, I was threatened with the draft. There Wait a minute. Was, I want to go back me. to your week at Tassaharam. If it was 68 in March, it would be during a practice period, so they wouldn't have had people. If it was 67, there was hardly... Uh, that's when I first came, was in March of 60... Well, February but came to live there in, in March, there were very few of us. There was like a dozen of us, or you know. They, they, it was well, starting I, to grow, uh, but um, uh, anyway, I you were there. By, by, it, I, I met you, I think, in 68, if I'm not mistaken. Uh-huh. Uh, all so right, you well, see, I, go on. All right, so at any rate, so I had learned to, to meditate and my questioning was still direct, was was directed at this point. At any rate, so we started uh, the, the draft resistance and we ran a safe house. We actually had a safe house where AWOL soldiers who wanted to flee the army would hide out. It was, there was literally an underground railroad getting soldiers out of the army and up to Canada along the West Coast. Uh-huh. So we were a, a station on, on, on the road, and I helped run that safe house. Wow. Yeah, the, now, all right. Uh, I want to go back to Bill Shirtliff. He was involved with, I don't know to what extent, with the draft resistance, because he he was uh, he was hundred percent. Yeah, uh, 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 right. Okay, he was with uh, Joan Baez's commune, uh, and oh, uh, and his brother was uh, very 
he, he really looked up to his brother who sang with Joan Baez and uh, they were into uh they were totally into draft resistance and um not paying taxes but you know a lot of them didn't have to worry about taxes but she did I didn't make any money so taxes wasn't a problem but uh yeah I was part of that scene and uh you huh. know, I, I I knew Joan while David was in prison. I was one of the people who helped kind of guard her. And, uh, oh, and anyway, really? so, oh. Yeah. So one day or one morning, I mean, this, we called it the mountain house. This little, still there on, uh, on the way to Jacoti. You can go that way and, and, uh, from Los Altos. And it was in the, the house was in the bottom of the valley, but you could walk up towards the ridge and watch the sun come up. And I'd, I'd love to do that. <laughs> so one day I go up there and I sat down and meditated and I had a deep, I had read this little thing from Paul Reps. It yeah. said that when the breath goes down and turns and the breath goes up and turns watch and I did that and then it was sort of like I I was engulfed in darkness and then this bright light appeared and, and all this focus of this extraordinarily brilliance of my mind and these Great words, and know the knower. And I was kind of flabbergasted. And, you know, from that point on, I felt much more secure. I felt finished. Mm. And uh, it wasn't too long after that that uh, I went on the Peace Torch Marathon. We worked, uh, we had all kinds of things in the draft resistance. I went back to Berkeley to study Chinese some more. Got interrupted by the third third world movement strike. Uh, mm. I, I was told I'd better get out of town. They were looking for me. And I was, I was really, I mean, a striker. I was, you know, right. I was right with the guys who shut down the university, and we did. We we, we won. Mm. And uh, People's Park. You were involved with People's Park. No, this is before People's Park. The movement before People's Park, the Third World Movement. Mm. I think it was a whole year uh-huh. before People's Park. Uh, uh. But uh, probably run people as far as I know. But anyway, I was told to get out, and uh, uh, I uh, fled south, got involved with a hippie group called the, the Magic Bus, something like that. Ken Kesey's uh, thing. No, no, it was, might have been the same bus. I don't know. It's a different. It, the bus actually had been in that movie, Sabisky Point, with Bill Garraway. Anyway, uh, I drove that, that bus for quite a while. But uh, we were busted for marijuana in, in San Diego County. They pulled over by, as soon as the busload of hippies arrived in, in San, San Diego County. I think they were, we were 
they were notified we were coming. And uh, I think they, when they finally searched the bus, they found three marijuana seeds. At any rate, we were all in jail, bailed out somebody in San Francisco. We went to the preliminary hearing, and the judge asked each of the defendants to stand up. And that was so that they could identify, the FBI could identify uh, those of us they had warrants for. And when they had a recess at the trial, I went out to smoke, and I think it was five FBI agents surrounded me, stuck a gun in my back, handcuffed me, and carried me away. And that was, you know, one of the things about, I had spent some time at Tassajara uh, before being arrested, and I had to. I, I asked, "Could I please stay at the at Tassajara?" And I asked Suzuki Roshi if I could stay, and I, he said, "No." And I said, "Please, I'm 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 going to go to jail, and I I really want I I need to have my practice so I can survive." And he said, "Okay." And I remember. I, I turned around and I bowed and turned around and walked away. And he hit me with his little stick, you know, the, the stick. Hit me in the back. With it. Huh. I turned around, what? <laughs> oh, nothing. He said, nothing. I don't know exactly why he did that. But, but at any rate, so uh, I think it was the, that was the second time I was at Tassajara. I sat Tangario. Um, was uh, admitted into the Sangha. And uh, I, I'm not sure if that's the summer that I met you or that was the time I met you or if it had been the summer before. Mm. But at any rate, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But I did meet you and uh, you used to sing the song, I Want to Be a Bodhisattva. Do you still sing that? Oh, uh, well, uh, no, but... Uh, I want to be a Bodhisattva baby. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was so much fun. Yeah, I had a great time at Tassahara, and it really did help. You know, when I was in the in the prison, I was solid. The, uh, there was a, a draft resistor came in, and he was just so scared. And a few days later, you know, they took him out. He, he folded. I was suddenly offered. You just join the army, and uh, no thanks. But uh, but eventually, what, what, what is perhaps ironic is that uh, when I was arrested in San Diego, I was incommunicado. Nobody in the draft resistance knew me. No, you know, movement lawyers, anything. Nobody knew where I was, what had happened. And I, I wrote a letter to somebody, and uh, the, the folks at Stanford, my old buddies at Stanford, uh, discovered that I was a draft resistor, and I was in... They uh, pointed out my bail, $10,000, and hire. Isn't that sweet? You, you can't shake the, the, the upper class. Wow. <laughs> There was a uh, glitch in the audio there. Uh, uh, what he said was some 
friends of his at Stanford got word that he was in jail and put up $10,000 for his uh, bail bond. One of the old fraternity brothers had become a lawyer, and so he could legally come and see me inside the jail. I was up in Los Angeles by that time. And uh, he said, do you want to get out of here? And I said, oh, yes, yes, I do. And another man came in, and he administered the constitutional oath. And I repeated it and uh, accepted. And that gave them the surety that I was not a uh, enemy agent. And so they they wouldn't bail me out if I if I was a, a, a communist who wanted to overthrow the you know the 1950s stuff. But uh, mm. so I satisfied them, and they, and, and they uh, they let me out. And it wasn't too much after that that I met Sarah and eventually got married, went back to school, got a degree, and then and and so on. But that was pretty much, you know, the it was with the turbulent times of the '60s and drugs and these great people uh, hmm. that that I met and that that I knew all the way. I mean, for you and. Uh, Gary Snyder, Suzuki Roshi, Coben. I had met Coben by this uh, soon after, and it became really became one of Coben's students hmm. because of Los Altos. And then I worked with up at Chikoshi. But the the awakening part, I you know I really don't know if, if I had gone to Berkeley back in '63. And had just settled down to be a, a good normal student. I probably would have. Who knows what I would have studied. Mm. That chance. You remember Berkeley and Mario Salvio? I think, you know, I was part of the of the youth revolution of the uh, of the late sixties, seventy, early seventies. And there's just no way, no mm. way I, I could have escaped that. So anyway. But what I really, you know, like Buddhism and Zen Buddhism and the, you know, the, the, like what I had studied uh, has given me a, a solid foundation. I really feel like I see clearly, I know what's up, I know what this world is all about. There are a lot of details, of course, to learn and a lot of you know, we can refine our dharma, we can re- uh, increase our capacity, but, but I, don't, uh, I don't feel confused or depressed or disturbed. Mm. These are, the, are shit times, you know, with global warming and this war in Ukraine and Happenings all over the world. America seems to be rapidly falling apart with inflation. I remember my friend Elliot, he would always talk about falling apart. It's always falling apart. <laughs> uh, hmm. 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 That's, uh, that's, uh, 
quite some uh, uh, series of uh, experiences you've had, uh, you know, from, you know, the Chinese and the Korea. And uh, I always liked Korea, incidentally. Oh, I love Korea. Yeah, it was a, a relief after being in Japan because it was so much more relaxed. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, but, um, you know, Spain and Tatsuhara and, uh, Chikoji. Uh, yeah. Hmm. Do you have any kids? Three. Uh, I'm at my daughter Lisa's right now. She's a professor at the FSU, uh, Florida State University Film School. Oh right! Her husband you, is the yeah is the dean. Hmm. Hmm. And how do you spend your time these days? Well, I uh, when I, I I when I moved from California, uh, oh, I was the uh, I had a great job working at those two universities. Very fulfilling, David. Uh, like working with the young people. These kids were were poor, first to ever go to college. They had never been taught well, and that if I could just turn them around and get them thinking straight about how to write, how to use English, they they might have a chance. Mm. And on the other hand, like. The whole world came to me. One time I had 50 Mongolians come and, uh, to, to our, our, our school. And I, I worked with so many of them and so interesting. I learned a little Mongolian and the writing system and the history. Mm. And, uh, another time I had 50 Chinese students come from Xi'an, China. And, uh, I was, able to, to talk to them very well in, in, in China. In fact, it, there's always a graduation ceremony and all the teachers give their little talks, everybody. Well, I gave mine in Chinese. <laughs> hmm. and, and my Chinese students uh, it, it understood completely what I said because it was very simple. Yeah, and uh, so the... Uh, Financial crisis of 2008 wiped out the university's funding base, and the schools literally had no money. Mm. The, from the legislature, the the uh, the taxes were so reduced by all the foreclosures and evictions. Mm. So I could have worked very part time. But there were so few jobs, and some, the, the way they worked is that you'd 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 bid for uh, a, a class. You'd say, "I want two classes. I want three classes. I want four or five classes," and you'd get more money. And if you have five classes, wow, you were you know actually able to make a living. But uh, I just decided. There aren't, they, they, they cut the program in half. I mean, it went from a year 
from two semesters to one semester. Mm. And so I, I, I'll just retire. I'm old enough to retire and uh, let the younger teachers. And you see ELI just disbanded. One day uh, they had us all meet at a local restaurant and gave us a T-shirt and a gift card to Starbucks and a chocolate bar and said, thank you very much for your service. So I could no longer afford the rent in California. And my daughter said, well, come on out here. We just bought this house, setting up. You can help us get, you know, get the house ready. And uh, she knew I wanted to buy a boat. And there are lots of boats for sale in Florida and uh, sailboats. So I, I, I moved. I moved to Florida. I've been here ever since. And, uh, How long since what year? Well, I think and I think 2009 uh, was uh, was when I finally moved out, mm, and mm. I bought my boat in 2010, and I lived on it <coughs> ever since. So there's some. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, it, it's like I couldn't afford a house, you know, and uh, at that time it wouldn't wouldn't have been. We didn't want to live with my daughter and son-in-law. Yeah. Well, that's but, neat. Uh, yeah, the boats worked out well. It's 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 hot in summer. It's without it. I I bought a little air conditioner for it, but uh, because it gets gets stifling. You know, the water is hot, David. The Gulf and the South Atlantic are like sometimes places in the nineties. Uh-huh. Locally, locally measures eighty. Six degrees. So basically, the boat sits in the water and conducts, you know, all, all that heat. And uh, now, if I were in the water, eighty-six would be just a like a cool bath. Yeah, right. But right. but eighty-six degree air is uncomfortable already. And then when the sun beats down on an un, uninsulated fiberglass boat, it just gets cooking in there. I mean, it'd get 100 degrees easy. So, but the rest of the year, it's really quite, quite, quite nice. And uh-huh. the boat sails well. It's a, you know, it's a good boat. <clears throat> Have you noticed any increase, uh, in the temperatures uh, in uh, the time you've been there, of the water, Much the harder. air? Both. Both the air and the water are noticeably warmer. There'll be these, you know, remember with the heat dome in, in, in Texas, New Mexico, Arizona? Hmm. Well, that... When they were having their their heat dome, we were having these daily thunderstorms, which really made the weather quite nice. But then the heat dome moved over, and it was just hot. That was when I, you know, inside the boat was 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 just awful. But uh, but yeah, it seems, and and the, I noticed the water rising. 
uh, notice, you know, a few inches. There's definitely, you can, granted time, well, there's certain markers, like they, they'll build a, a, a dock, right? A fixed dock. Yeah. And, and there are days now when that dock is covered with water. And they wouldn't have built it at that height. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's, few, it, it's really weird the minuscule amounts that the ocean average has risen and what large amounts it has uh, created in the uh, variation around the world. I mean, th- there's people here in Bali who... Uh, got places, you know, on a beach, and and they had to leave it because the water, uh, you know, got too high. Uh, yeah. And and uh, uh, you know, I I remember hearing there was that comedian who got into sort of right wing stuff. What what's his name? Dennis something. Saying, well, I can take it. You know, the world gets. Uh, a degree, two degrees hotter. Well, that's all right. Two degrees. No, he didn't understand. It's like your body getting two degrees hotter. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. A, a, yeah, we don't do well. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We're all set up for ninety-eight point six Fahrenheit. Yeah. Yeah. The the, uh, the the human bodies have have gotten warmer, but over a, a I don't know how long a period of time. Um. So, uh, what do you think about uh, climate change? You got any uh, uh, thoughts on that? We're screwed. Uh, (laughs) David, the the people have not thought this through. What they want to do, all this Green New Deal, is that they just want to replace the current energy system with assist with the uh, uh, solar panels and wind turbines and all these other things and it's just not going to work there is not enough uh rare earth and copper and everything <clears throat> to create that kind of energy yeah and yeah and and we require a, a fundamental alteration. The car culture has got to go. The, the, the fact that we, we've built a civilization out of the automobile is really one of the dumbest things that any culture has ever. Yeah, in hindsight, you know, I mean, in hindsight, it's dumb. <laughs> um, yeah, poor planning. Uh, and not listening, very poor. Not listening yeah, to no the warning so. signs. I mean, there were there, there there were warnings way back in the 20th century about climate change. Uh, not real loud ones, but they were there. And in the 50s, it was recognized by a number of scientists, and it was you know, uh, uh, and um, but. So, you know, and, and, you know, Silent Spring came out in the 60s and, uh, yeah. Uh, and, and then, so as it gets louder and louder, you think, all right, great. Now, now we're going to do something about it. But we don't. 
And and now, when there's an enormous amount coming out about it, we're really, I don't know what the difference is between what we're doing and doing nothing. Uh, we're doing nothing. Yeah. Uh, what generally happens, what I've seen happens, is that they build all these uh, solar plants, these alternate energies, and all that does is add. They just add to the energy consumption. <laughs> well, and, there there is some positive effect from uh, clean uh, energy. The percentage uh, that's going toward clean energy rises. I mean, I I I I sympathize with what you're saying. I I don't think it's enough. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's like this struggle going on. There, there's, there's the do less, uh, get, get away from cars and fossil fuels and not just get away from fossil fuels, but get, get away from the lifestyle that needs so much energy. There's that. That's a smaller group yeah. trying to keep the same level of, of, uh, living standard, et cetera, uh, and, and doing it in a way that's less harmful to the earth. That's a much, much bigger group. But not giving a shit and not doing anything, that's the biggest group. Anyway, good luck to us all, huh? Good luck to us all. But the thing is, I, well, if everybody lived like me, we wouldn't have this problem. That's true with us, too. For for very many years, I have lived with minimal energy, take trains, take buses, walk, bicycle, don't eat meat, don't buy super amount of clothes, don't consume, don't use plastic. You know, these, we wouldn't need a single more solar, by the way, I have solar panels on the boat. And uh, believe me, they come in handy when when there's no power. You ha- it's nice to have power. Yeah. But uh, uh, by very few changes, I mean, really give, stopping all this idiotic consumption, all this plastic use, stopping all this driving, you know, where do these people go? Why do they go there? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, getting changing industrial agriculture to sustainable, I mean, to organic farming, uh, overnight or, you know, in a short amount of time, this thing would reverse itself. We could still use fossil fuels. It's not like no fossil fuels, just not so much of them. Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. My, that's my theory. But those kinds of changes are politically unacceptable. People will not give up what they call their standard of living. Not only will they not give it up, there are a legion, there are literally billions trying to get into it. Oh, you mean to to join it? Yeah. Yeah. I I don't know about this turning it around. Uh, Like, you know, when the Titanic it, it saw won't. that it was going toward that iceberg, it couldn't be turned quick enough. That's right. 
you remember Jared Diamond and Collapse? Of course. All right. One of the the uh, chapters was about the Scandinavians in uh, Greenland. Do you remember that? I I, when, I do, when, but I don't remember the salient points. Well, when they arrived in Greenland, it was in one of these uh, warmer periods, and they were able to reproduce right. their Icelandic lifestyle with the cows and the pasture and the milk and the cheese and and uh, their slightly primitive lifestyle worked fine. Then when it got colder, they could not adapt. They, the, the word for the local natives was scraling, and they despised the scraling. I don't know why exactly what caused them to... They weren't Christian, maybe, who knows. But uh, Anyway, the, the scralings ate seal. The Scandinavians would not eat seal because the scrail... Who knows why, but they... They, but the the story that Jared Diamond gave is that they would not adapt to the changing conditions, and they maintained their beloved agricultural system till long past when it was not viable anymore, mm. and they all left or died. Mm. Yeah, he gave. Um he scored countries on sur- survival, uh, survivability. Uh, he gave Japan high marks and America low marks. Uh, but, yeah. you know, it's global now. Uh, and, uh, you know, the good guys are going to go down with the bad guys in terms of dealing with climate change. Uh, but we'll see what happens. Um, hey, I think we, um, we're, uh, we should, uh, summarize, <laughs> uh, no, we should, uh, come to a conclusion, uh, with our, uh, conversation. It's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, uh, me too. And, um, uh, I, I learned a lot. You know, I see on Cuke.com, I've got a 1995 interview with you. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And you were living at Jikochi uh, and having a hard time. And it sounds like you've done pretty good since then. Uh, uh-huh. uh. Well, what do you mean summarize? Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, uh, uh, no, really, a better really thing. Is, yeah. What would you like to say in conclusion, Dad? <laughs> well, in conclusion, I believe that a solid foundation in the Dharma and good uh, meditation practice is the uh, best preparation for what comes next. I think that is well said. I think that is well said. Uh, You know, Suzuki Roshi would say, you know, the reason we practice is, and then there would be different uh, 
<laughs> different ways to complete uh-huh. the sentence. Uh, uh, and one of them was so we can enjoy our old age. And, uh, uh-huh. and, and, uh, like you said right there, so that mm, we can be prepared for what's to come. What'd you say? Anyway, it was good. We'll be ready for what comes next. Yeah. Well, we'll be as ready as can be. Or we can, uh, deal with it as well, uh, you know, uh, in a more effective way. <laughs> or we can, we can give in to it easier. <laughs> well, I knew I was right when I asked Suzuki Roshi to stay because I was able to really survive, thrive in jail and uh, make friends, learn a lot. And uh, that's interesting. That's interesting. Uh, Yeah, you know when people get um, get sentenced to prisons, which I'm I'm against. Prisons and incarceration for nonviolent, for people that aren't dangerous. I think it's barbaric. And of course, mm-hmm. I'm not the only one. There's a long history of people, uh, being against that. Uh, but, uh, since we do have the, uh, horrible prison systems all over the world, there ought to be an, uh, you ought to be able to take a, a prison preparatory, uh, course uh, like in in meditation and uh uh adapting uh, you know yeah you go to class well how to deal with prison hey and martial arts martial arts hmm. we well, have to have a way of carrying yourself that advertises that you are not to be fucked with you know and, uh, i've heard that uh I've heard that. Uh, I knew a pretty tough guy who was in Zen Center, Renee Pate. It spent about 20 years in federal prisons. Uh, and, uh, he had some very unfortunate tendencies. Uh, and he said, um, you know, you can't, I, I visited him in prison twice. I said, uh-huh. uh, you can't lead with your personality here. Uh. I thought that was very, Interesting, but also, uh, he told me like his, you know, as soon as he got there, he said, you know, they test you. And he said, the guy serving him food in line, uh, you know, uh, you know, I don't know what he did. Didn't give him a time or didn't give him enough or something. He showed him. And Renee told me he leaped over the table and attacked the guy. And, you know, he got oh. some sort of, uh, uh, administrative, uh, 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 problem because of that. Uh, he but he hole. said it, it helped. Uh, but yeah. there's a lot of prisons, uh, in America that are easier, uh, uh, from, from what I've gathered. But, but the whole idea is terrible. Uh, I'd rather be in prison in Indonesia. Uh, uh, it'd be a great way to get really good Indonesian. 
there was a guy here. Uh, a lot of times, you know, that they'll they'll let you go if you pay a bribe. And there was right. this, there was this guy who got robbed, and uh, the hotel he couldn't pay his hotel bill. He got mugged, which there not doesn't happen a lot. Very little in the area where we live. Uh, pretty low crime place, but um, the hotel, you know, just called the police and the police arrested him and then uh he was supposed to pay the bill and then they added fines they kept adding fines till till uh, they wanted fifty thousand dollars and he said no send me to jail send me to prison so he was at the prison here in bali Krovacan, uh and i've been there uh to visit you know uh, he was there uh a year he served a year for that and uh he said he'd rather serve a year than pay their you know their damn fine their <laughs> bribe and it was so crooked uh and he said it was a very interesting experience of course you know it was difficult but the the there wasn't like being with a bunch of horrible, dangerous uh, psychopaths. People here are pretty good to each other uh, yeah. on the whole. And uh, I, I was at the prison with uh, a very close friend who had been in prison five different times. And we were picking up some art there. And uh, all these guards came over and said hello to him. <laughs> uh, but um, anyway, all right, all right. I, I, I've I, forced us to go on even longer. When you made such a good point of uh, that, would you restate it? <laughs> all right. A solid foundation of dharma. And ability to practice meditation is a good preparation for what comes next. Hey, that is great. We should conclude with that. Thanks a lot. All right. Goodbye to you. Thanks for the, the fun time. Yeah, that was great. Really enjoyed it. And take care. All right. Bye, my friend. Enjoy Bali. Yeah. So thank you very much, Ted Tripp. Writing teacher. Yeah. That's pretty neat. And uh, his, um, his ESL, English is a second language experience. I loved it when, when he said, uh, uh, you know, when it was his turn, one of the teachers to give a talk at the uh, graduation ceremonies. There were like 50, 50 students there. He taught from China. He gave his talk in Chinese. And I enjoyed talking with him about language and, uh, or, uh, and, and we were talking about the, the syllabary, the, the Korean Jews, which, where each sound stands for a syllable, like the hiragana and the katakana in Japanese. And, uh, I mentioned there was an Indian tribe I'd read, you know, that had developed one. I said about 150 years ago. Uh, it was uh, actually between 1810 and 1820. I've looked it up since then. And I was thinking it was the Sioux, but right away, um, Ed said Cherokee. 
Uh, and, um, uh, you know, that, that's interesting. I was reading about the guy who did it. Incidentally, his name was Sequoia. Uh, so I guess he was named after one of those big redwood trees. Huh? Uh, anyway, <laughs> so um, he developed it, and he, he was uh, illiterate. You know, he didn't read English, but he just developed it uh, and used different symbols that were sort of like letters, and some of them were letters uh, to sound for these sounds. 86, as I remember, yeah, 86 and then reduced to 85 for some reason. Uh, anyway, uh, I enjoyed that and enjoyed talking with Ted, and I enjoyed the way he summarized it. Hey, let's, let's hear that one more time. Well, I'm just going to read it from my uh, transcription of the podcast. Thank you for this, Ted. A solid foundation of Dharma and the ability to practice meditation is a good preparation for what comes next. This has been a Cuke Audio podcast. I'm D.C. Puba of Cuke Audio and Cuke Archives. Coming to you from Sleepy Sanur with Dogget Bandita and dear lovely Katrinka. We're wishing you and yours and all of us a grand awakening.